Guy here. You're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MRKT Call. It's a daily video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we're joined by our friends Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young, that's EY of SoFi, for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media's YouTube page so you never miss an episode. All right, here we are. It's Thursday, April 13th. This is Market Call. That's MRKT Call. I'm Dan Nathan. I'm joined by Liz Young. That would be EY from SoFi. Today's episode is brought to you by FactSet, financial data and analytics powered by tomorrow. And of course, SoFi. Get your money right all in one app. I certainly do. Liz Young, welcome. We're, we're, we're missing somebody here. It we are. Little, it feels a little weird. You know, well, there, you know what? Maybe we can try to have just as much fun. I don't, no pressure, no pressure. Really? Oh, we're, we're, we're most, we're most deaf gonna have a lot of fun, yep. as the kids say. Um, just so you know, if you're watching this, you're likely watching it on YouTube. I think that's the only way you can actually watch this, but make sure to subscribe to that YouTube channel, like us, leave some comments here. We're gonna try to hit some of those comments in the chat. We took an email today, we're gonna do a trade idea on that based on actually Carter's charting yesterday um, of NVIDIA. Um, but Liz, you and I got a lot to talk about here because I'm a little bit, um, as Guy would say, exorcised by what's going on in the market. Um, you wrote a whole note on the PPI today, which is amazing. I mean, it's truly really amazing that you could do that, but you did. And we're going to talk. We're going to talk a little bit. Oh, look at that. CPI. It, it was on CPI. CPI. PPI was to, I tweeted oh, yeah, about yeah. PPI today. Oh, yeah. This one was about CPI, but yes, I did manage to stretch this out for like 800 words, which is, yeah, and, a, and, it's a feat. Not <laughs> it is. And, and, and again, I don't know if when you were writing that, you were thinking about Guy Adami. I'm always thinking about there. Guy Adami. You know, he's in your grill. He's up in your mm -hmm. head. Um, yeah, no, we're going to talk about that a little bit, but you, you know, today, like today's one of those days. It's just like, you know, we, we had a close yesterday after the CPI reading and we had a lot of volatility in the bond market as soon as that number came out and we saw equities move higher uh, on a slightly i don't know it was kind of in line it didn't feel that weak you know what i mean um yeah. and we had yield just got hit kind of hard equities rallied and then that kind of reversed throughout the day and so then we have ppi this morning which comes in um definitely less than what was expected and here we are we have yields flat but we have equities rallying pretty hard here help mm -hmm. me make some sense of this we're going to talk about the vix it's that it's one of its lowest readings in months um and mm -hmm. we're going to get the charts and you're you i love this chart that you had in your note about the move index versus the the, the treasury yield um volatility versus the equity and it just seems that spread is something that will converge very soon um, yeah. and that, and that fixes itself by equities selling off, right? So yeah. let's let's just kind of look, what are you seeing here in the markets? And, you know, I got a couple concentrated shorts. They're not working out too well on a day like today, but I felt great going out yesterday afternoon because the way some of these things closed, it wasn't particularly great. Yeah. So I will say, I'll start by saying I faded some stuff today. Look, I don't have a lot left to fade, but I faded some stuff today because I was up 
I'll give an example. There were two individual names, so I can't give the actual tickers. Yeah. But one of them was a consumer staple that I was up like 16% in. The other one was a healthcare company that I was up 35% in. And it was just time. It feels like this is kind of that rally that happens after a move where we had a bunch of fear. And look, look back at history. This is usually how it goes. You have a big bout of fear, which we obviously had in March. And then there's a bounce. I don't think anybody really understood what exactly was going to bounce, but there certainly was a bounce afterwards. And we've obviously had a bounce to start the year in tech. I think right now what's happening and part of why I put that chart in the note today about the move index versus the VIX is that at a very basic level, anybody who's watching this, anybody who watches CNBC or is an investor, an individual investor or a professional investor, it doesn't matter. At a very basic level, what you're looking for is a dislocation that you can make money off of, right? Yeah. And you're sort of guessing about whether or not that dislocation is going to go one way or the other. You're hoping that it's going to go the way that you assume. But this, I think, is a perfect example of a dislocation in the market. It is not going to stay this way. It's not going to stay where bond volatility is this much higher than equity volatility. Now, the guessing game is whether equity volatility is going to come up to meet it or bond volatility is going to come back down. My bet in the short term is that equity vol comes up to meet it. So this is something that I think is one of the easiest dislocations to find right now and to do some trading around or even short to medium term trading around and hold your stuff for a little while. Yeah, I, I think that makes sense. And I think the way you're just kind of talking about it is, is really helpful for our listeners, you know, and our viewers, because they know you to be a strategist. You focus um, primarily on the macro top down, but you look at a lot of sectors and, and you do actually have overweights, underweights as you think about them. And it sounds like, you know, you're not, a, a, you know, you're not able to talk about single names, but it does seem like you have some exposure there. And so when you see somebody like you who tracks all the data on a, day, a daily basis and guys, if you look and gals, if you look at her Twitter, I mean, she's tweeting as real time as this stuff um, is coming out and you have, you know, expectations for all that data. And then you're opining on how markets are reacting right to that data. Let's throw that tweet up from this morning. And this is just a, a good highlight of, of kind of the value add there, Liz, um, you know, as the um, PPI was coming out here. But listen, it, you know, no one, you know, you ever hear this expression, no one ever uh, went broke taking a profit. And, and I think that's kind of important. You know, one of the things we hear from all the time is like, oh, man, you know, you were bearish on that or you said take profits in that and it went up another this and that, whatever. You know, listen, if you never sell and all you do is buy that's fine. I mean, like that's worked out for a lot of people, assuming that you're never just kind of YOLOing the, like the hottest thing or this and that or whatever, you know what I mean? Cause then you're writing things down. But what I like the idea of is like in a bad market, and we've talked about this a lot on market call over the last call it year or so, especially when we're in that bear market, the well-defined downtrend that was in most equity markets for most of 2022. I mean, you dollar cost average, right? Into periods like that. And then you look to take profits on things as they get really unusually frothy. Does that make sense, Liz? And again, I'm not a strategist. I'm just a dumb trader, but that is what I've lived by for 25 years in the business. Yeah, but that but that is kind of what you should do as a trader, right? And and even the stuff that I faded today, like it it almost makes no sense that I would sell a staples name, right? If I expect volatility to come. But I'm looking at this name and I'm thinking to myself, I'm up 15, almost 16% in this. I feel lucky to be up that much in a staple 
right? Yeah. And I, it wasn't that long of a holding period. And it was something that I just don't think there's a lot more juice left to squeeze. I think that that particular company has benefited from inflation and raising its prices. So, you know, just thinking through that whole thing, I think I got pretty lucky even at a 15 to 16% gain. And I thought, you know what, I'm just going to cut yeah. it and run because I'll take that on a staple. And the thing about just the bonds versus stocks thing, you invest in treasury securities because you expect them to not be volatile, right? So somebody asked in the in the comments, how do you trade around a dislocation? It is partially about how you're how you feel and what your intuition is telling you. If you have a name in your portfolio or a position in your portfolio, especially in a time like this where we've seen such a big rally in the market and you feel like that position is something that you you've gotten lucky on now for a few percentage points of a gain, trim it. You don't have to sell the whole thing. Yeah. Trim a little bit, right? Take some profits. As far as stocks versus bonds go, look, bond volatility is so high right now. I still think it's okay to be holding treasury securities, particularly on the short end, and benefit from that drop in yields. But over time, what I would expect to happen is once we confirm or figure out whether or not this downturn is coming, you're going to see the bond volatility fall because what's happened recently is that we can't figure out if it's coming or not. We don't know what the Fed is going to do. But within the next 60 days or so, we're going to know a lot more about what the Fed is going to do. We're going to have another quarter of earnings. I think that bond vol is going to come down, but I think that the stock vol is going to go up. So when stock volatility goes up, usually prices go down. That's the opportunity, right? So that's how you trade around those dislocations. Right now, you're looking at it as, all right, something's got to give one of these is moving in the wrong direction and sending the wrong signal. Yeah. Um, great point. I, I think very soon, <clears throat> probably, you know, in and around that, that, that may fed meeting, we're going to be done tracking every comment out of the fed. Okay. Because at some point, again, unless we saw a big pickup, you know, a spike in inflationary readings, which this week is telling us that's not the case, despite what's gone on in crude oil, at least from the CPI and the PPI, then we're going to get focused on, okay, if the Fed pivots, it's because the economy is weakening, weakening dramatically. And that really, in my opinion, should not be good for equity valuations. And I guess the last point I want to make is like you were talking about staples. Okay. So consumer staples, if we can pull up Pepsi, um, this is a good example. Okay. So this stock has had a 10% move since its lows in February, okay? Think about that. If you were to have bought Pepsi, okay, in the in what was going on with the, this little banking crisis and that sort of thing in February um, into March, and you had the sort of run that it just had, and you bought it because you wanted to be defensive, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a consumer staple. Then all of a sudden now, at this point, it's gotten to a level where it's failed twice over the last, call it year or so. It's trading at 25 times this year's expected earnings that are only expected to grow 7% on 4% sales growth. That did what it was supposed to do, especially if you were thinking about it from a different, is, is that the way you think about it on the sector level also, Liz? Absolutely, yes. And there are some sectors that you can set really decent expectations for. How should it react in a certain environment? How shouldn't it react in a certain environment? And this broader Staples theme is something that I've been thinking about for the last couple of weeks. There are two different sectors that are pretty classically defensive, staples and utilities, right? Yeah. If we are headed for a downturn that's going to hit the consumer, I'd rather take utilities over staples. Also, if we are headed for a downturn where rates are going to stay higher, that means valuations are more important. Staples are overvalued by that metric. And you, you do get what you pay for, but I think staples are sort of at this point, like I said before, I don't know that there's a lot of juice left to squeeze. Now, right. will they do better? 
in a downturn than some of the risky stuff, sure. But you know what else will do better is if you just took some of those gains, waited it out, and didn't lose money by sitting in cash or sitting in a short-term treasury until you can redeploy it. So this is one of those times where I think you know you take some of that froth off, you put it on the sidelines, or you put it in something that's earning some kind of yield or a money market. I don't care what it is, gold even, yeah. and wait and wait for the right valuation to get back in. You really like that juice in the squeeze thing. I know. I, I, I can't was, come off. If you've got another analogy for me to well, use, let's, let's not let's not do it a third time. Blood it from a stone. It won't be. It won't, it won't be. A, it won't be a charm. Um, you said something though, other than that little little anecdote, um, that is kind of interesting. Something's got to give, right? And so, let's just pull up the S and P five hundred chart here. Um, again, I think if you're watching a market call, you, you, this fact set chart is embedded in your brain. Um, you see what's gone on here. It's made this little pennant formation, you know, and we've had that nice bounce off that uptrend from the October lows. We're well above that two hundred day moving average, and and I think again, you know, Carter often says this. You know, it's great when the, the the lines are precise and the levels line up right the way that that we hope they do in in our in our minds um sometimes they just don't and if you look at where the S&P is consolidated right here right in and around that downtrend that's been in place since the all-time highs at 4800 in the first week of January 2022 and so again it hasn't made a decisive move i mean i'm looking at my fact set screen and i have you know hundreds of stocks separated by sector and everything's screaming here for the most part um and so it's interesting to me that you still have an s p stuck at a technical level and then the other point about this and this is really what i think you know as far as something's got to give liz it's like if you look at the vix you know it's just kind of melting here right we're trading very near like multi-month lows and the last time the vix had you know was as close to 18 it was right before the banking stuff got heated up in march and we saw a move up to 30 and that was commensurate with you know a seven percent or so drawdown in the s p do you look at readings like the vix as a one-off i know that that chart that you had in your note today the move versus the vix it led you to a conclusion but is this something that you think is tradable because to me if this thing melts and gets into that kind of support zone um it, it's like a layup in my opinion throw a dart at any of the major u.s indices because i really do think that the s p is going to be you know on its way going back to unchanged and i think then again if we're also kind of weaving this together as soon as we get the fed narrative out of the way we're really going to focus on corporate earnings and then how much is the u.s economy really decelerating well i think we're going to focus on corporate earnings even before the fed it, it, that happens on may 3rd we've got I think 250 some companies that'll report from the S&P before the Fed even starts to meet. So there's a, there's a lot that's going to happen still between now and then. Uh, the VIX at these levels, it yeah, it does. It send a, sends a signal. And if you look over what's happened in this whole cycle, when the VIX gets below 20, that's usually a good time to have been trimming. When the VIX gets above 25, that's a good time to be thinking about adding on some risk, right? Because the, the market has been swinging so much in either direction. I think I said this in the note today, we are still in an environment where the intraday swings can be huge. And even yesterday, what happened on the CPI report, you know, in the morning, kind of a, a bump, it was, okay, great. It wasn't as bad as maybe some feared. And there was some moderation in certain components, the ones that hit the consumer, like food and energy. And that was definitely good news. And we got a bump in the morning. And then towards the middle of the day, we gave it all back because I think the realization is, oh, but wait, it's still kind of high. We're still under pressure from the Fed. There's still tightening going on. Credit conditions have worsened and all the other things as we digest it. The moves in the VIX right now have been so de minimis 
that it does. I think you said this a few weeks ago, the VIX looks like it's ready to party, right? Yeah. And then it did party for a very brief period of time. And I think it looks like it could be ready to party again. And you look at the second half of April and think about this too. If you look, and this is Butter's work, if you look at the sectors that are supposed to contribute positively to this earnings season, albeit the full earnings season is still expected to be negative, but the sectors that are supposed to contribute positively are cyclical sectors. If we go into a downturn, I'm willing to bet that those sectors then get revised downward as well. You're looking at things like consumer discretionary is supposed to contribute, financials, energy, material, right? All those things that are classically cyclical sectors. If we go into an economic contraction, that story could fall apart as well. Yeah, you know, and one thing that I, I think is pretty fascinating, you just mentioned this. Um, let's pull up the, the yield on the two-year U.S. Treasury. I mean, when that CPI came out yesterday morning, it dropped 20 basis points. It was at 407. It went to 387. And, you know, when you see the volatility bands in something like that, and Guy says this all the time, this is supposed to be one of the most liquid markets on the planet, okay? And it is liquid. It's just been very volatile. And those are two separate sort of things, right? But just look at what's gone on since it topped out, right? And this is, um, you know, in March, it went from, you know, 5% to below three or below 4%. And then look at the, how the volatility has just increased in around that 200 day moving average. So um, I find that really interesting. And then the last thing, you know, and, and I kind of referenced this a little bit, let's pull up the NASDAQ 100 chart here. Um, you know, this is also stuck at a level, despite feeling like a risk on sort of day or when yields come in, it's supposed to be good for long duration assets. We've talked about that a lot, but the NDX is still stuck at a technical level here. And so, you know, this is why I think the earnings period is going to be so important. And you just mentioned John Butters, He's a senior earnings insight um, analyst over there at Fact said He was on the program yesterday. I mean, we, I mean, this is really actually pretty amazing. I mean, the hit to over the course of Q1 to S&P earnings estimates from strategists and from analysts, it's down like 6.8% over the course, right? To basically, you know, flat year over year. That's pretty astounding. So it means that the estimates have come down. So companies may actually come in line or meet those lowered estimates. And then it comes down to what the out quarter guidance is or the existing quarter, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's some things that are maybe benefiting a little bit. Maybe companies, multinationals are feeling good about the dollar round tripping the whole move over the last year or so. So maybe that, but the lack of visibility. And then I think at least what we're seeing from small businesses, what we're seeing from consumer confidence, what we're seeing basically around this banking crisis. And we're going to know, we're going to talk about banks in a second here. Um, we're going to know what lies beneath other than just the regionals. I just think that there's a lot of headwinds right now, Liz. And, 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 and again, the bond market volatility in yields is not something that makes me feel bullish whatsoever, especially when equities are expensive and they're trading at tricky levels with really low levels of volatility. That's the fix. Yeah. So let's talk about tech just for a minute here and tech earnings. One of the things that I think people should watch is obviously we know that tech went through more of a market drawdown than other sectors in 2022. And then they started to cut earlier than other sectors earlier this year, late 2022, right? They cut jobs. There were a lot of headlines about tech companies cutting all their costs. What we're going to hear about now is whether or not they cut costs enough. And there's been an argument that they were bloated as it was. They had too many employees. They added too many during the pandemic. So they could afford to cut and still be okay. This earnings season is probably the first one where we're going to find out whether or not they're, they need to cut more, 
right? If they cut costs enough, and, and look, there's a possibility that they did. It's a it's very possible that they cut costs enough in order to preserve their margins, in order to be okay with lower revenues because inflation is falling and because activity has fallen. But if they didn't, we're going to know that by the end of this earnings season. I would also tell people to look at, you know, even if there are beats, even if tech companies are beating, go back and look at how much it's been revised down. If they're beating something that's been revised down a lot since last summer, not as impressive. But that's how I think you can decide whether or not tech is an okay entry point or a hold during earnings season this year. Yeah, that's that's a great point. I mean, listen, and that's also, I think, since the lows in October. And we listen, we've seen a lot of rallies into and out of earnings season over the last, call it, you know, 16 months or so. And they've all failed and they've all made new lows. And, you know, I kind of feel like the S&P is going to do that. I'm not sure the NASDAQ is so far above those January lows. I'm not sure that's going to happen here. Um, but I want to hit a question here because this is one I think we're going to spend more time over the next month talking about. And this is from uh, a one Tom Sweeney. Um, I think he's at Jersey Hoya. So he's obviously a Jersey guy who's into the Georgetown Hoyas. He said, are you panicking about the threat of a debt default? If not, why not? And I just want to say this. Last night we had Tillman Frittata. He is the CEO of Landry's. He's the owner of the Rockets. Um, he was on the CNBC's Fast Money with Guy, me, Melissa, um, and it was really, it was a great, uh, it was a great interview. And there was uh, also, and we'll put this in the show notes and, and maybe Jacob can put it in there. Um, my friend, Jeff Richards from GGV Capital, um, he tweeted a story of, from Texas Monthly um, of Tillman Furtada. And it was basically, uh, this is a two, $2 billion buyer. So he was just talking about the opportunities um, that he sees. And so there was like a quote there. That's when I grow. He's talking about in difficult times because companies are not run well and then they panic and he goes, I don't panic. I mean, that's a great line. So Liz, are you panicked right now? Are you panicked about no. the debt ceiling? And if not, why not? No, I'm not panicked. Not okay. yet, at least. Uh, so <laughs> it's going to heat up. The, the conversation about it is going to heat up this month. They're talking about budgets right now. We don't actually hit the debt ceiling and run out of money until early June. I am reasonably confident. I'm not, no, I'm not saying I'm confident in Washington in general, but I'm confident that they will be able to raise it. They'll come to an agreement. I don't think that uh, it's a good look for either side yeah. to not get there, especially given what we're in right now and especially given the circumstances. Now, will it put political pressure on the Fed? Perhaps. Yeah. Uh, if the Fed would prefer to keep hiking, it may put some political pressure on the Fed. And that's something that we never really get confirmation of, of whether or not the Fed made a decision based on anything political whatsoever. Of course, the party mm -hmm. line is that they did not. Yeah. But uh, it, it certainly will be a topic for discussion come late May and then early June. And, you know, as our government usually does, it may come down to the absolute last minute. And we'll find out at midnight, the day before we would hit it, that everything is okay. But We've got some time to get through that. I think there's a lot more to focus on in the near term. So no, I am not panicking. And I'm going to leave you with a quote to close that out. However, panic panic is never a good thing, right? Especially as an investor, you're going to make bad decisions if you panic. But there is a book, I may have quoted this before on here, written by the former CEO of Intel in the late 90s, and a quote in it, only the, par it's this, the book is Only the Paranoid Survive. Mm -hmm. And then the quote is, the greatest danger is in standing still. 
So as an investor, always remember those things, but only the paranoid do survive. So there should always be some element of paranoia. Matter of fact. Okay. Uh, just by the way, uh, Tom, Tom Sweeney's a good friend and he, he watches all of our market calls and listens to our on the tape. And um, so um, shout out to Tom. Thanks for the question. Um, I'll just say this on the, on the debt ceiling front um, guy, Danny Moses and I had a great conversation with Stephanie Rule. She's the host of the 11th hour um, on MSNBC. And she joined us yesterday for a conversation on a whole bunch of things that, you know, they kind of, you know, crossed the Rubicon of politics, economics, markets, that sort of thing. We talked about the debt ceiling. So tune into that. That drops um, tomorrow morning. And she had some pretty interesting insights. She talks to a lot of important people in both finance and, and also um, in Washington. Um, let's let's switch gears a little bit. Um, we had Carter Braxton Worth um, on Market Call yesterday, and he did um, a little bit of a, a rundown on NVIDIA. And I just want to, we got a question and I wanted to kind of read this question here. Um, and I got to find it for a second. So bear with me here, people. Um, the question was from Jeffrey Armstrong. Um, love the show. That includes CBW and LY from SoFi. See that LY? It wasn't EY, oh. it was LY. Um, <laughs> of course, guy is hilarious. I appreciate Dan's option plays. Can you design a play on NVIDIA that Carter suggested? I want to understand the whip, time to expiration, and the percentage of price, anything relevant for a newbie. Um, and yes, Jeffrey, we will do that. So thank you for the question. Thanks for watching here. Um, and so, you know, Carter and I did options action together on CNBC for 10 years. He would often lay out his um, technical view on individual names, uh, you know, on indices, on ETFs, that sort of thing. And then Mike Coe and I would come up with some trade ideas, sometimes on our own fundamental views, but oftentimes incorporating his technicals is the way I think about trade setups. I use lots of different inputs. Okay. So like it might've been that I'm watching Carter on worth, uh, you know, worth charting. And I see his take on NVIDIA and I say to myself, you know what, that chart really does look like it's ready to come in. And then I may kind of go to my fact set machine. I might look at some valuations. I might look at some comparative stuff. I might look at expectations. I might look at, you know, just a whole host of things, maybe product announcements, when they're going to report. And I'll just kind of put together a whole little thesis of, about my thoughts. Now, I'm a trader, so sometimes I will take a long position, a short position. Sometimes I'll define my risk using options, that sort of thing. And so in, in a situation like this, with a stock that's up 80% on the year, it's up 150% from its October lows, if you try to short this at any time over the last kind of three or four months, you had your face ripped off, right? There's been like short little pullbacks here. And this is a great example of when I do want to use options. So let's run the tape and see what Carter said yesterday. And then let me run through what I'm thinking about and how I would kind of create an options trade to reflect his view. The truth is it's a double, let's trim some. So the lines, you can draw them this way. You can draw them any way you want. But I think uh, you get a break in trend. You play for two two thirty. Okay, now let's pull up my chart. Um, and again, you know, Carter um, I, has forgotten more about charting than I will ever know. And to be very honest with you, I've learned <laughs> a lot about technical analysis from him. But if I put this chart and I'm going back a year, look at that line. Carter said two thirty. Okay, and you see it's where. The stock gap to after its earnings in February, but it's also basically back to a level that was an important breakout level, right, above a then 52-week high. So to me, that's really interesting. So I've drawn two lines here. Sometimes I'd call that a hungry alligator. And I'll tell you this, Carter does not like that chart formation. I made it up one day on the show. He doesn't appreciate it, um, and, and but it does. And what's going to happen is if he is right and my trade is right, that alligator will have eaten. 
and then he will be happy. Okay. So think about it that way. And so that, like, that's the way I'm thinking about that, Liz. All right. So let's go, okay. let's go to the last point. I can't imagine why he doesn't like that analogy. Yeah, but, but let's go to one of the last points about why I might want to express this view with options defining my risk. Okay. So here, here's a chart of the 30 day at the money implied volatility. That is the price of options in NVIDIA. That is the blue line that you see. The white line is actually the realized volatility, how much it's actually moving. Yeah. Now, usually when you have realized at a discount to um, what's implied in the options market, that's the premium, right? The extrinsic value to an option, that would mean that the options are actually kind of expensive. But if you look at where the blue line is relative to its one-year levels, it's basically crashed, right? It's at 52-week lows. And so what I want to do is I want to use options here. I think they look relatively cheap to me to express an outright bearish directional view here. So here's the trade. So today, when NVIDIA was trading about 267, I could look to May expiration and I could buy the May 265, 225 put spread, paying about $10 for that. That's 40 wide. I'm paying 10 bucks. That's a quarter of the width. And that's usually what I like to um, you know, kind of map out when I'm looking to do a trade like this. I don't really want to pay more than 25% of the width and I want it sort of near the money. So in this trade idea, I'm buying one of the May 265 puts for about $12.5. I'm selling one of the way out of the money May 225 puts at about $250. That gets me to that $10 in premium that I'm spending. That is my max risk. I have profits of up to $30 between $255 and $225 to the downside with a max gain of $30 below $225. I've lost Losses of up to ten dollars between two fifty five and two sixty five, with a max loss of ten above two sixty five. Again, we're trading at two sixty seven. So this trade idea risks a little less than four percent of the stock price, has a break even down about four and a half percent, and has a max gain of eleven percent if the stock is down about fifteen and a half percent on May expiration. So that's a little more than five weeks from here. I like the risk reward of this trade. I'm defining my risk on a bearish contrarian. This is really important, right? It's bearish and it's contrarian in a stock that's up eighty percent. Like I said, up 150% from its 52 week lows. So, and the last thing I'll just say is how do I risk manage a trade like this? If the stock continues to move higher here and that $10 I spent gets to about $5, I want to cut my losses there because I don't want to see long premium directional trades like this, especially in a stock that's in a massive uptrend and has unusually positive sentiment. I don't want to see these things go to zero. I'm going to cut my losses and look for another way to play it. So Liz, I know that was a mouthful. I know that you've never been on the CNBC's options action, um, but that's kind of what we do. We're marrying that's pretty you know, cool. fundamental views, some technical views. We're thinking about the options market, how it's pricing it. And I want to make one last point here. This company is going to report their fiscal Q1 earnings on May 24th. So a week from the time in which this expires. So normally you'd say to yourself, okay, well, you're not catching the event. That might be the catalyst. I also think something's got to give. And I think a stock like this will lead to the downside. I'm not going to ask you a pine on NVIDIA, but we know that like the SMH, the ETF that tracks the semis, okay, is up 24%. So it's way outperforming the S&P. It's way outperforming the NASDAQ composite, which is up about 15%. You said this on the halftime report, I think a week ago, you want to be a mm -hmm. seller of the semis. Yep. Last Monday, I my final trade was sell semiconductors. Look, if we were, if I felt like we were possibly in the beginning of an economic expansion, if we yep. were early stage, and that would coincide with a market that's probably already moving up into a new bull market that who knows how long that could last, but into a new bull market cycle, right? 
then I would say, absolutely, great. Semis should be up this much because they should be that cyclical indicator that leads up. Same thing with something like home builders, right? Small cap value stocks. Those are the things that do well in the early part of an expansion. I don't think that's where we are. So sell semiconductors was along that same vein that I mentioned earlier in the show. I feel like if you were holding the SMH, you probably got pretty lucky on this rally and it's okay to take some profits. I'm not saying you got to sell the whole thing, right? Yeah. Take some profits, get it back down to whatever is right-sized for you or index level, what, however you're managing your portfolio. But I think it's okay to take some off the top, especially because yes, semiconductors are a tech play. Yes, they're sensitive to rates, but I think a lot of the run-up that we've seen in the first quarter was rate driven. Now you could say, well, rates are going to go down further if the Fed pauses and cuts and so on and so forth. Yes, that's true, but for bad reasons, right? Yep. And they'd go down further because we probably confirm that an economic contraction is either here or is imminent. So if that's the case, semiconductors are the most cyclical part of tech. They probably take it on the chin, especially because they're one of the parts that has gone up the most in the market. So I would be careful. That's one of those times where you look at it, your gut says, this is a bit much given the environment. Again, if the environment was different, if we were early stage, I wouldn't be saying that. And I, I look forward to the day where I can come on here and say, buy semis. I like semis. I don't like saying this kind of stuff, but it just doesn't match up with where the business cycle is. Yeah. So real quickly, so NVIDIA makes up nearly 14% of the SMH. Taiwan Semi makes up about 11%. Intel makes up five and a half. And just to be clear here, um, NVIDIA is up 82%. Taiwan Semi is up 18%. Intel is up 22.5% of the year. AMD is up 42% of the year. I think they've um, enjoyed whatever pessimism you thought, um, you know, like is in the stocks here you know, at their lows at the end of the year about the cycle and that sort of thing. I think it's more than discounted at this point given um, the performance. Here's a sector I just want to hit. We're going to hit two more things before we get out of here. I know we both got to get out of here. Um, airlines. Yesterday, American Airlines disappointed. The stock was down 8% at one point. Delta was down um, in sympathy with it. Look at that thing. It's approaching you know a level that it's bounced off of on numerous um, occasions. Delta reported this morning. Stock was initially up a few percent and now it's down a little bit. It's recovered off of those lows here. It's well off of its 52-week lows compared to American. But I want to look at the Jets, the ETF, um, Liz, that tracks the whole space here. And it's funny because when I look at this ETF, you know, it looked like it was a nice little uptrend. It broke that uptrend and now it's been below that uptrend, right? So that former support is now um, resistance. It's kind of contending with its 200-day moving average. This, to me, looks like a broken chart, and the fundamentals seem to confirm it. Now, if you're an investor and you're buying Delta or American or any of the names here, you're basically doing something contrary to what the companies are telling you about their business right now. So I'm curious, what is your takeaway from seeing those two reports and then thinking about the technical setup here? So... I'm actually going to talk about this on a program later today, yeah. but there has been a moderation in consumer spending on things like travel. Now, some of the comments that we got, I believe, out of Delta were that they're seeing record bookings ahead of summer. Uh, and that's great. Right. And, and I think some of that is due to the idea that energy's come down. You also are seeing, you know, consumers, OK, maybe we should travel. Maybe we can travel again. I think a lot of people have done, you know, rentals away from home for the last couple of years, and maybe now they're going back to Europe or, or whatever the case may be. There are some trends that are changing. However, you have to keep in mind, 
these airlines are heavily dependent on consumer spending. And I know we've said this before, so forgive me for sounding like a broken record. Consumers can change their minds on a dime. They can cancel trips. They can not book trips. If energy goes back up, which I actually think it could later this year, that becomes a headwind as well. So it's not just about what the stock is doing. It's not just about what these CEOs are saying right now and what they're seeing right now. You have to play into it what the consumer may do for the next three to six months through the summer travel season. If this travel season is disappointing, these airlines are going to get hurt, especially if it happens at the same time as rising energy prices. So be careful with looking at it and saying, oh, they're, you know, they're at a good entry point. Earnings are okay. They're still going to have demand. I don't know that they're still going to have demand like we've seen. Yeah. All right. Last one here. Tomorrow morning, we know that <clears throat> JP Morgan, City, and Wells Fargo report. I think BlackRock also reports. The one I want to focus on here is JP Morgan. You know, the stock is down about 11% from its March highs. It's performed much better than many of its money center peers, and obviously a whole heck of a lot better than a lot of the regional um, names here. If you look at this chart, though, it's really kind of holding on for dear life just above its 200-day moving average and, you know, at a level going back to, I don't know, a year or so ago. Um, what's interesting to me, Liz, the implied move in the options market, this is a one-day move, okay? It's about $4, about three and a quarter percent. And this is probably the most important thing, in my opinion, what Jamie Dimon and the company, kind of what they have to report, what they say about future reserves, what they say about, um, you know, the, the whole little banking crisis that we had um, last month, whether it's contained, we know that he had his annual letter out, about, I think about a week ago or so. So that might have taken a little sting out of this. But from a technical standpoint, if I think about $4 in either direction, that basically brings me back towards the highs from just about two weeks ago, okay, or basically near the the closing low um, from last month, that one day at a gap lower and then kind of closed on its highs. Thoughts on how you would be positioned, not tomorrow into the print, okay? Because at this mm -hmm. point, I don't think that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. I really kind of want to, if, if the stock gaps up and the rest of its peers don't have anything good to say and you couldn't take anything out of it other than just a relief rally, I want to sell it. Okay. I just want, I, I want to be really clear on that. Okay. And if it gaps down and they had something to say, I think you sell every rally at that point, even what I mean, like uptick in, in my opinion, because I think technically these stocks are broken. And I think the uncertainty is going to be around for a while because we talked about everything that took down some of those banks last month, but there's going to be duration mismatches, which to a much lesser degree as a percentage of, you know, the capital and all that sort of stuff. But then we start talking, about and we're not going to do that right now we'll save it for other programs about credit risk and exposure to commercial real estate and, and and all that sort of stuff so thoughts real quickly liz on how you're thinking about the banks out of the reports and most of them are going to be done in a week from now yes i think the the biggest key is actually the last part of what you just said we are fully aware of what happened in march right we're fully aware of the deposit flight that occurred i think we're also now fully aware of a lot of the mismatches in duration, the valuations of loans and holdings on balance sheets of banks. So none of those headlines would surprise us. Could they worsen? Sure. Yeah. But it's not new news at this point. I think what would be new news, number one, is as we listen to these banks, these bigger banks report, they're going to tell us whether or not they increase their loan loss reserves for the rest of the year, how they're feeling about the rest of 2023, given what just occurred. And the other thing that I think is, this is the second part of it, this whole commercial real estate piece, which 
some banks aren't as exposed, others are very exposed, but the defaults that are happening in the space, the credit crunch that's also occurring on the, on top of that, right? I don't think we've seen that play out. Now, look, I have liked financials. Before March, I was still thinking, all right, you know, financials, I'm okay with them here. The valuations were reasonably attractive, knowing that maybe they would have a pullback in a recession, but I was okay with holding through that. Yeah. Now, I don't feel that way anymore. I faded as we bounced back out of that March low and, and some of that March volatility. I would be in a holding pattern on financials. I want to hear what the big banks say about the rest of the year. But where I think maybe we differ is if we get really bad guidance out of many of the big banks, yeah. I do think the stocks feel pain on that. And that is actually a time when I'd start thinking about re-entering and adding. Yeah, but not too soon. I mean, at that point- Not too soon. Very you carefully- you drip in. Yeah. You know, and I, I, listen, I've been saying this on Market Call for the last week and a half or so. Um, you know, I had been um, short of the XLF and, and kind of pressing that. I had a good trade in Schwab on the way down, um, but I got smoked over the last week in my XLF position. I've been talking about it. I said flat out last week, this is not a good press right now. They're trying to find a bottom here. Sometimes I'm just a glutton for it. I need to be there, um, you know, to some degree here. And, and I've kind of cut that position. So now I really am waiting for those two scenarios. Um, that I just laid out. All right, Liz Young, this was a lot of fun. I really appreciate you uh, being in here, stepping in for the full half an hour. I think we went almost 40 minutes. We went 40 minutes. So thank you um, so much. That's going to do it for today's market call. We won't be here tomorrow. We're going to be back on Monday. Thanks to our sponsors, FactSet and SoFi for bringing us today's show. If you like what you saw, be sure to like the video. That would be in the YouTube. Leave a comment and subscribe to Risk Reversal media on youtube so you get all of our latest content um i'll be back on monday at 1 p.m with carter braxton worth of worth charting we'll see you then have a great weekend people thanks a lot liz